Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. The release of bile regularly throughout the day is helping make sure we don't have things like SIBO or candida or other pathogen overgrowth in the GI tract. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Access to functional or specialized medicine testing and standard blood work is a big piece of personalizing care plans to help our clients succeed. But getting accounts with multiple labs and ordering and tracking results from many different web portals slows efficiency by bogging us down in admin work. This is why I'm completely obsessed with our podcast sponsor, Rupa Health. It's a single portal that allows you to order from over 20 specialty labs in one incredibly simple dashboard. I'm talking less than 30 seconds to set up your free account and about 30 seconds to order the labs you need. All the results are in one place and I can securely send clients their results with a click of a button. A big advantage for our clients is that standard blood work can be ordered for almost two thirds less than other direct to consumer lab sites. Rupa is a lab concierge, so they send the lab invoices on your behalf if a client pays for their own labs. They help them get set up with a lab draw, navigate testing questions, and they provide the requisition forms. It's literally a dream. Go sign up for free to help streamline your practice and simplify ordering labs for your clients at rupahealth.com. That's R-U-P-A health.com. And let them know I sent you when you sign up. You can also check out the show notes for this episode for a short video walkthrough of how I use Rupa Health in my own practice. Okie dokie. Today we have a return guest, my friend Kaylee McDevitt. She's a registered dietitian specializing in women's health. She owns a virtual private practice where she and her team help their clients overcome hormone and digestive issues through personalized nutrition. Having experienced the pitfalls of a conventional approach to women's health firsthand, Kaylee's passionate about empowering women to take the driver's seat of their own health and well-being. Kaylee, what did we talk about before? Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. I don't remember what the most recent one was on, to be honest. 
might have been birth control. Who knows? Oh, no, it was ovulation. We talked about ovulation. Oh, yeah. Ovulation is a real MVP. That's right. Yeah. Try to include that. I'll make myself a note. We'll try to include your other episodes in the show notes. Cool. We're talking about gallbladder because no one talks about this cool organ (laughs) until they're about to have it out and they're like bent over in pain. Yeah. As a fun aside, which was not on my topic list, but aside, one of our friend's kids was like keeled over in pain the other day. Mm. And I think older, us older people and above, I think we have a predisposition because you know so many people with gallbladder issues with aging, but this kiddo had an appendix issue, which I think is more of a kid thing, different organs, but you can both keel over when you're having an attack of sorts, Mm -hmm. right? And so (laughs) coming out of the gate with that, let's talk about the gallbladder, like big picture, why you should care, before you're throbbing in pain and what that feels like. How do you know if you have a gallbladder issue? So take it away. Um, Why should people give a crap about the gallbladder? Yeah, we could do like a quick, what is the gallbladder in case this is like our first run in with this. Yes. Your gallbladder is like, kind of looks like a little coin purse, in my opinion, that's hanging out (laughs) behind the liver. And its job is to store and concentrate bile. So your liver is the organ that's making bile. And we'll talk about what bile does and why we care about that. But it's handing that off to the gallbladder where it gets concentrated and stored so that it can get released at the right time in response to fat in a meal. And that sounds like it's not even that cool. Like this was totally not even on my radar learning about it in school. Like I was not interested in this. (laughs) But Like I say, we, because Krista and I talk about this all the time. We see a lot of signs and symptoms of gallbladder issues in our clients many of which are not severe enough to require like gallbladder removal, but we're just seeing like dysfunction or suboptimal function. And that bile being healthy and flowing well and released at the right time in the right quantities is essential for absorption of fats and therefore fat soluble vitamins, which are really big deals for health. Um, It's A, D, E, and K. Mm -hmm. D gets all the airtime, which is very important, but the other ones are too. If you care about fertility, skin health, immune health, not having like all of the things. Yeah. All the things. So kind of a big deal that we're absorbing fats and therefore fat soluble vitamins. I'm in the women's health space and we've got to have those fats to even be able to manufacture our hormones. So if we're struggling to absorb them, that's a big deal. Bile is big in regulating cholesterol levels too. So We excrete a lot of toxins, excess cholesterol, excess hormones via bile. So big in detoxification. There's some really interesting research about bile and like both lipid and glucose metabolism. That's somewhat recently on my radar, which is very interesting too. seems like it can help regulate blood sugar levels. And that bile is not just responding to hormones, but also triggering hormone release, which is super interesting. Hmm. This is interesting. And then the last thing that I think should be on everyone's radar as it comes to appropriate bile flow is that it's actually antimicrobial. So the release of bile regularly throughout the day is helping make sure we don't have things like SIBO or candida or other pathogen overgrowth in the GI tract. So we see a lot of people in our practice with like really persistent gut issues, like usually have worked with a lot of other practitioners and been through all these protocols and things just aren't resolving or at least not long-term. And it's one of our theories that sluggish gallbladder function is part of that. Yeah. Let me back up big picture. When you say that, whenever someone says something that flirts with the topic of digestion, I'm like, let's stop right there Mm -hmm. because digestion appropriate digestion, which you aren't necessarily seeing. So what's it look like if you're like at the very basis, like if I'm not maybe 
using bile well, you might have loose stool if you eat mm-hmm. more of a high fat. That's like kind of like a dead ringer. But yeah. this boils down to poor digestion, poor digestion, poor absorption of fat soluble. Like it's like when there's poor digestion, you're not going to get any of the stuff that you could get from what you're eating. Mm-hmm. So it's just like in one, out the other, or you're not getting benefits whatsoever. I mean, not, right. not at the rate you could. And so mm-hmm. then you just slowly break down and feel like not awesome. I mean, I heard a nice way to say it the other day. And I like, I think it's essential for, since you brought up pathogens, the way we think about carbohydrates, so many people avoid carbs, but really mm-hmm. they're energy. We're supposed to manufacture yeah. those into energy. The greatest sources, they're some of the best sources, B vitamins, which is what you manufacture into energy. And so if you are eating carbs and feeling tired, that's like poor digestion, mm-hmm. which is, has a root cause, right? And so if you could just digest them, then these could equal energy and not right. fatigue after a meal. So side notes, backing up totally. big picture digestion. Do you have anything to elaborate on, on bile helping regulate blood sugar, that whole thing? Yeah. So that's new on my radar. I can certainly send over the studies that I was looking at on this, and I would not consider myself super well-versed in the mechanisms there, but there's something to regulating the bile acid pool. And that's influence on this one type of receptor. That's going to affect how well the liver can regulate blood sugar levels, particularly in the fasted state. And they see a lot of bile acid pool abnormalities in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, Mm. which I think is how that originally got on the radar, which is super fascinating. And then as far as the lipid metabolism piece, or bile is one main route of getting excess cholesterol out. And that's why a lot of cholesterol lowering medications are actually dumping more cholesterol into bile for removal. Mm. So bile acids can influence the amount of lipids somebody has. And it looks like from the studies that I was seeing that bile acids can actually self-regulate that bile acid pool too. So they can have their own influence on lipid metabolism and how much bile acid is getting removed and getting recirculated because there's this whole very uh, economic recycling system that happens with our bile acids. We're almost like... 95% of them get reabsorbed and reused like 20 times. So we've got very efficient systems in place. So more body is so sustainable. I know. So so sustainable. That's the word I was looking for. So trendy. Very trendy. (laughs) So it sounds like if we want to support gallbladder, you might, one of the steps first is supporting the liver and then they're connected by a duct, right? Mm -hmm. So because it's the coin purse, which I've never heard that analogy before. (laughs) I always say the bank, but I like that it's a coin purse. Yeah. Because it's small, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. More of a coin first, (laughs) not necessarily a bank. So (laughs) let's talk about like the dramatic ends of it really quick. And then we'll Mm -hmm. get into the people I'm lucky to have my gallbladder. So I'm going to, we're going to, we can talk about what it's like when you have it, but let's talk about what it looks like when things go, when stuff hits the fan and kind of post that, you know, cause that's kind of, it's not quick, but it could be summed up you know, relatively quickly. So let's talk yeah. about what it looks like when, what are the signs that the gallbladder is going awry and then when it's yeah. really awry? Yeah. So the thing that usually brings gallbladder onto people's radar is a gallbladder attack. And that is when like actual stones are forming in the gallbladder and get themselves lodged in the bile duct. And this will feel like very abrupt onset of pretty significant pain. And this will usually be in response to eating because that would be the time that the gallbladder would be contracting. And therefore those stones are now getting themselves stuck and preventing normal flow of bile. So we get this backup of pressure. We get a lot of pain. It's usually under the right rib cage, but can sometimes be felt in the back or even under the like right shoulder blade is where some people will report that. And that can be accompanied with things like fever, shakiness, sweating with that pain, not always, 
And then some of the lesser severe symptoms would be just like nausea or hardcore indigestion, particularly after high fat meals, that discomfort, it might even be like tender to the touch under that right rib cage, like greasy stools or stools that are showing the fat malabsorption, which looks like, like an oil slick. Hmm. <laughs> if we want to get floats on the, floats yeah. on the top of the water. <laughs> on the top. And so normally somebody will have that kind of pain and that's going to prompt a visit to the ER most often or an urgent care. And they'll typically do an ultrasound and they'll do some blood tests at that point. Sometimes we can see gallstones on an ultrasound that seems to vary based on the makeup of those gallstones and also the size. So it's not always going to be conclusive, even if there are issues there. And I think that's really important. And then they're going to do like a comprehensive metabolic panel, that kind of blood work. And what you might find there that would be suggestive of some issues would be like elevated liver enzymes. Sometimes you'll see elevated bilirubin too, since that's a really common breakdown product of red blood cells that is excreted via bile. Alkaline phosphatase is another enzyme that might be elevated if there's issues going on there. And at that point, we've got a couple of options. If it seems mild per their diagnostics, you could do some medications that can help dissolve stones if they find them. They might just recommend some diet and lifestyle changes. And usually the recommendation is to eat low fat. And we'll definitely have to talk about why I think that that's an issue long-term. And then of course, if things are severe, gallbladder removal would be the recommendation. And that's like, I meant to look up this statistic so I could say it with confidence. Isn't it the most common surgery in the US? Oh, I don't I it's one of it. the, I don't know. <laughs> one yeah. of the most. That's why I think that it's good that we're having this conversation because if people are just searching gallbladder, hopefully they can find this. Yeah. Because sometimes you're not quite at the point. Sometimes we get lucky and someone's not going to have emergency gallbladder removal. And so yeah. we can support it, right? Which is fun. It's fun to avoid a surgery, I think. Yes. Oh my gosh. And to keep an organ because I just, I am under the belief we don't have things on accident. Like everything serves a purpose. And though we can absolutely live without a gallbladder, I think we're missing out on some of its really important functions. And I think we're we're just starting to figure out some of those functions. Yeah. We're dang resilient. But Mm -hmm. my favorite analogy was always, if you remove a light bulb, the socket is still there essentially. Mm -hmm. So there's still power going there. So let's talk about how do we typically support like conventionally and functionally support gallbladder after removal to stay on that path at the moment. After removal specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say like it's determined Mm -hmm. that this gallbladder is going to be removed when it gets removed. Now what Mm -hmm. happens? Yep. So once the gallbladder is removed, we're still making bile. So the liver has always been the one that has done that, but the gallbladder is the concentrator and the store. So instead of really concentrated bursts of bile getting released in response to meals, we basically just have like a slow trickle of bile into the intestines from the bile duct. So that means that digestion is not going to be, or fat digestion specifically is not optimized because it's not potent bile, not dose meal that came in. So typically making sure we're eating on a consistent basis. So that bile just trickling in can be irritating to the intestinal tract. So we don't want to go super long stretches of time without food, particularly meals that are going to have some fiber in them seem to be the most helpful in this case. And then I usually have my clients without gallbladders using like an ox bile supplement to stand in, in the absence of a gallbladder at mealtime, particularly higher fat meals so that we get a more concentrated dose of bile with that meal and better chances of absorbing those fats and fat soluble vitamins. I'm going to try to reiterate because there was like the shortest blip in the internet, which was, (laughs) no, it's totally good. I don't think we missed much because I 
I'm enjoying, I don't always do this, but I'm enjoying just typing as you talk, which is nice. So when we don't have our gallbladder, we're missing the concentrating and storing. So we're not getting these short little bursts or you're getting, essentially, I think what we missed was that fat digestion is not going to be as efficient um, as it could be because we don't have this coin purse reserve. Mm -hmm. And so we're relying on what the liver can produce at that time. And so typically, like you said, the recommendations are to eat lower fat, Mm -hmm. um, or eat more frequently, which kind Mm -hmm. of has its ups and downs, right? Because Mm -hmm. that can get a little bit complicated. And I think also what I tend to see is, you know, I had a mom without a gallbladder for my whole life. I never really saw her doing anything different ever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So sometimes she would go place and they'd be like, oh my gosh, you were never told to use bile acids or ox bile. Um, And that can be a really nice tool because guess Mm -hmm. what? You might go to the fair this weekend. Maybe you won't. Maybe you're going (laughs) to eat something that like you don't have enough bile to to work on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but let's go back to that comment that you had where the recommendation, which I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think we can be excited about recommendations for a while. It depends on the person's specific yeah. reactions. I remember having a dietetic professor in college who took that seriously, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember her taking that seriously. I don't know anyone else who does, unfortunately or unfortunately, I don't care, but let's talk about why doing low fat is maybe not a great recommendation and also reiterate what could be done instead there. For sure. So fat is the one component of our foods that's actually going to trigger this release of bile from the gallbladder or in the absence of gallbladder, your liver is just trickling it out. So if people are having symptoms in response to fatty foods, it makes logical sense that we'd have them reduce the amount of fat that they're eating. So then we're not relying on the gallbladder so much. And then if we're not having the contractions of the gallbladder, we're going to have less episodes of pain. And a lot of times post gallbladder removal, they're having pretty significant symptoms of fat malabsorption, like legitimate diarrhea after eating, the nausea, the discomfort. So if we have less fat coming in, they may feel better there. Now, this is an issue, particularly for those that keep their gallbladder. And this is like a gallbladder health recommendation that they get because we actually need to be triggering a contraction of that gallbladder regularly throughout the day to keep bile healthy and flowing and not sluggish. So we have to have consistent healthy fat intake in order to maintain a healthy gallbladder. And if we think about how common gallbladder issues are and that we're coming off of decades of fat phobia, Mm -hmm. it makes a lot of sense to me because we were all doing low fat everything through the 90s and a lot of the 2000s and our gallbladders were sitting there getting stagnant because they weren't being used as often if we were restricting our fat intake. So you know, we see low fat dieting as a root cause for gallbladder issues. So if the recommendation when you start having gallbladder problems is to eat low fat, I think we're doing a disservice there. Mm-hmm. All right. So going back one step, especially if they keep their gallbladder, mm-hmm. maybe what we could do instead, this is what I do. I give them gallbladder support, gallbladder nutrients, mm-hmm. and yep. sometimes bitters. There yep. are like, if they knew they had stones, there are some herbs that can break those up. Like you said, there's medications mm-hmm. and that's certainly an option, right? Those are good options instead of just going straight to removal, if you can tolerate those and it works out. But I've had a lot of success with supporting nutrients. I've had people who are like, oh, I was starting to have a, you know, painful gallbladder. And they were like, oh, we're not going to remove it right now. Mm -hmm. And so I've been so happy when someone has asked because I'm like, hey, could we save your organ? This would be fantastic. Wouldn't it be exciting to do that? So that's what I do. Um, Yep. Anything else you do? Okay. Oh yeah. Same here. Like big on choline, glycine, taurine, those being building blocks of bile. And those are really abundant in any of those like gallbladder nutrient formulations. And they've been so helpful. 
Mm-hmm. On the note of you talking about, since you, I just thought of this with those nutrients, which are also mm-hmm. huge liver supportive things makes sense, yeah. right? What once, what supports one may support the other, but those are pretty awesome for gallbladder. There's an episode coming out soon or around this time where we talk about liposomal supplements. Maybe it was a different one where we talked about detoxification. There's some rough topics and essentially like bile is kind of the MVP of Mm -hmm. that needs to be working well to clear stuff. And so that's where this topic comes. Like if you're having detoxification symptoms, which may look like fatigue, skin Mm -hmm. issues, sluggishness, retaining weight or water, whatever, could be a lot of things, but those are big ones. I guess I hear all the time. Um, then being able to clear things has a lot to do with bile. So anyway, let's talk about common issues with the gallbladder, how they Mm -hmm. start and stuff like that. Yeah. Take it away. Okay. So sluggishness, I think is the typical way that we describe issues with the gallbladder that are not severe enough to prompt removal. And this would precede significant stone formation. And so this just means that either bile flow is uh, not being released sufficiently in response to meals, like it's moving slow, or maybe there are some stones that have formed and they're smaller and it's restricting flow through the area, or that bile has become too saturated with like cholesterol or bilirubin, which are common components of bile. And there's a necessary ratio between the bile acids that make up bile and the things like cholesterol and bilirubin. And those bile acids keep cholesterol in solution. So they stop it from precipitating into crystals and starting the whole stone formation process. And so if we are lacking in bile acids, if we're dehydrated, bile is a large percentage of water, or we have something going on, which can be hormonal in nature, that's causing super saturation of cholesterol or bilirubin in our bile, then we're going to start having that sluggishness and the breakdown in our ability to use bile and have it flow the way that we want to. And so that's going to present in the same symptoms that we discussed with a gallbladder attack, just usually less severe. So we might find we've got some indigestion or maybe some nausea after eating, particularly if it's a higher fat meal, we might have persistent problems in the GI tract, whether that's SIBO or candida or other pathogens that just won't clear. Typically low energy is part of it because we're talking about absorption of fats and fat soluble vitamins being foundational for optimal health and detoxification. So low energy usually runs in that circle. Skin issues ranging from like dry skin to keratosis pilaris to full on rashes can be common in this group. Maybe you're seeing persistent like vitamin D or vitamin A deficiencies on your lab work, despite normal intake, even weight loss resistance. I've seen pretty commonly with sluggish gallbladder. Cool. Those are some good points, like, you know, saying things in a different way, persistent D deficiency. Mm-hmm. There's so many things that can go wrong yeah. there. Let's talk about that super saturation of cholesterol and bilirubin. Why might that be happening? And then let's get into other reasons that the gallbladder gets sluggish overall. So we can kind of yeah. create a checklist. Okay. So there are a couple of things that could cause this like increase in the amount of cholesterol in our bile. One is cholesterol lowering medication. So that's something to just be aware of. If we're on medication treating high cholesterol, one of the common mechanisms of action is to dump more cholesterol into bile so that we can remove it, which works for lowering cholesterol. But now we've got a higher cholesterol burden on the bile inside the gallbladder. Hormones So cortisol, estrogen, and progesterone all have impacts on the saturation of cholesterol in the bile. So chronic elevations in cortisol can slow bile flow and can make that sluggish. So unmanaged stress. I know it's always coming around. Lame. (laughs) 
And then as far as our sex hormones go and why we tend to see a lot more gallbladder issues in females, particularly in childbearing years or postpartum, is that your gallbladder actually has receptors for estrogen and progesterone. They have some different actions inside the gallbladder, but estrogen, we believe, increases the amount of cholesterol saturated in that bile. So that's going to make the likelihood of it crystallizing and forming gallstones increase in states of estrogen dominance. And that can come from like endogenous production. It can come from hormone replacement therapy, can come from hormonal birth control. And the increased risk in gallbladder issues is a known and reported side effect of hormonal birth control. It's actually in the uh, package insert. And then progesterone decreases the motility of the gallbladder. So less frequent and less strong contractions in response to food. So anything that's increasing the amount of cholesterol there or decreasing the motility of that organ can increase risk for gallstone formation, which is why during pregnancy, particularly in the third trimester, we are much more likely to experience gallbladder issues or even postpartum because we have these big fluctuations in hormones, particularly progesterone while we're pregnant, that can cause some issues in this department. Mm, there it is. So the thing is, we see a lot of postpartum, that's you just brought it full circle, right? So I think you said progesterone decreases motility of the gallbladder. So you have less mm-hmm. strong or frequent contraction. So that's our problem. We need to use it. So we don't yep. lose it. Ha, yes, ha, ha. exactly. <laughs> and so in pregnancy, that's our high time of progesterone, which no one says anything bad about progesterone typically because yeah. it makes us happy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's how we maintain pregnancy. There's a lot of women that are on extra progesterone during pregnancy because theirs is low. And so there's a risk of miscarriage there. So maybe even being on the extra progesterone, obviously Mm -hmm. benefit is important there, which is kind of like, I think this is where people can be like, oh, this is so frustrating, Mm -hmm. right? But there's a push and pull always. Always. Um, So if we have this high time of progesterone, maybe postpartum, we're seeing this gallbladder attack. Do we see Mm -hmm. that a lot during pregnancy? That seems really inconvenient to have a gall. I don't even know. I guess I can't think of an instance, I knowing someone who's had their gallbladder removed during pregnancy, it would seem yeah. like they maybe wouldn't do that. I don't know. Have you seen that? I have not, not in anybody that I know or clients that I've served. So that's interesting because mm-hmm. it's almost like, and I don't know, like if you have had that happen, send us a message. So yeah. Like, but you know, are we, is the body that smart where it's like, Hey, I need all this progesterone to do all these things to make this mm-hmm. baby and hold on to this baby. And then, so if someone's maybe on extra progesterone or like ups and downs, what happens right postpartum? Is there like a huge loss of progesterone and estrogen? It's actually yep. just thinking about this yesterday. And that's what I was thinking. Um, yeah. So you might see like a, some weepiness, anxiety postpartum mm-hmm. because you're, you know, it helps with good moods. It's one of the yes. pieces there. So that's why I was thinking about it. But mm-hmm. all right, cool. So let me back up. We mm-hmm. got gallbladder receptors for estrogen, progesterone, estrogen excessively, whether you're using hormone replacement therapy birth control, you have too much of your own production, which might look like, you know, symptoms around your period, essentially. Um, All of those could create a sluggish bile situation, Mm -hmm. which is going to just be like, it's just not going to work very well. And the progesterone is going to decrease that motility. Um, The cortisol, if it's high long-term is what you said there, that it's dumping cholesterol into the bile further. Was that what it was? So that's a slowing of like gallbladder motility as well too. Okay. So And I mean, that makes sense if we think about that, because if we've got excessive amounts of cortisol, we're hanging out in like the fight or flight state, not rest and digest. And the gallbladder function is absolutely in that rest and digest department. I mean, that's foundational for digestion. So it makes sense to me that we'd see less focus on gallbladder function if stress is persistently high. Yeah. I'm sorry that we're telling you this because it's really annoying. (laughs) 
So, you know, if you have like really terrible unchecked stress, you might just have a lot of pain with Mm -hmm. eating because you might be creating ulcers. You might be having like sluggish gallbladder to where it's like a slightly painful every time that's contracting, you know, because it's a little sluggish. Okay. What else is on the list of risk factors for the sluggish bile, I guess, or sluggish gallbladder? Hypothyroidism is on that list. Active thyroid hormone to promote normal motility of the gallbladder too. And that's very much hypo, right? Yeah. Hypo. So underactive thyroid would be part of this picture too. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because that would run with the same group as high prolonged stress or unmanaged stress, estrogen dominance, Females, for the reasons that we discussed already, are at like two or three times higher risk for gallbladder issues than males. Mm. Obesity is a risk factor for gallstone formation, and so is rapid weight loss. So if we are losing weight really, really quickly, we are much more likely to see gallstones or gallbladder issues. Um, What do you think is happening right there? I know that's a very interesting thing to me too. I'm like, we're breaking down fats and mobilizing fats. Is it that we're now using the gallbladder a lot more than we were previously? Are we using that as a means to dump like an excessive amount of cholesterol? I'm not sure about the mechanism there. Right. And, you know, rapid would be more than the, like, you might, what do we say? Like a one to two pounds per week, usually yeah. is max of the normal weight loss, like trajectory. So if you're doing mm-hmm. much more than that, which that would look like probably some stimulation, you know what I yeah. mean? Most likely. Yeah, that would be my guess. So there might be some other factors there. I wonder if they're looking at that. I wonder if having bypass might be a factor there. Like there's a lot of adjustments that the body is trying to do. Just wondering like what else is in the big picture there? So, Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. And then low fat dieting, history of low fat dieting would be a risk factor for gallbladder issues. Because you're not using it. So you're losing it. Exactly. That's a cool way to think about it is that, you know, we talked about earlier, like digestion is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And on the next thing, if digestion is the most important thing is you got to use it. You got to use your digestive organs, essentially. You got to stimulate them. So let's talk about that here in a second. What else is on the risk factor list? Those are the main things that I'm seeing come to mind. And it makes sense why this is such a common issue, right? If we think about that list, I mean, we're all stressed. If you lived through like the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, you probably partook in low-fat eating. Estrogen dominance is super common or just use of things like hormonal birth control or hormone replacement therapy. And that's very much a chicken or the egg type situation with this whole gallbladder conversation because we need healthy bile flow to get excess estrogen out. Like that's a necessary step in the detox yeah, of estrogen. So if excess estrogen is causing an increase in cholesterol saturation of bile and it's not flowing well, then we're just going to continue to accumulate more estrogen because we can't detox it well. So it Mm -hmm. creates this vicious cycle. As a side note, the bad advice of not eating the egg or the egg yolk, whenever that decade was, I don't know if that was the nineties or the late eighties, who cares? Uh, But you know, old, old myths sometimes die hard when we're just doing the whites, we're missing out on the gallbladder loving choline. It's one of the richest sources of choline that gets a lot of attention in our circle, but not the big circle. Mm -hmm. And it's such a key nutrient for liver and gallbladder health. And so, you know, it already had built in in its whole food form. It already had built in. I think we need to step back and you and I are like, our worlds are upside down on this as well. It's like we oversimplify. I like to oversimplify things that are complicated, but we oversimplify complicated things inappropriately. Sometimes we're like, this is low. So let's give this. 
in a whole food form, nature's got our back usually. Yeah. <laughs> like, duh, <laughs> someone was smarter than us before we created it. So anyway, <laughs> the whole egg already had built in what it needed for mm-hmm. cholesterol degradation, elimination and use and utility. And as a side note, since we're talking about bad mouthing things, cholesterol um, yeah. is an essential backbone for every hormone, which you may have said earlier, but I'll just go ahead and repeat it right now. So having overly low repeating. cholesterol is an issue for your brain health and your hormonal health. Mm-hmm. So yep. side notes. And the other thing I'd add to that of things that we just like don't eat a ton of that are necessary here is really bitter foods. Yeah. Give us your list. Let's not not do chocolate and coffee. I think we overdo, (laughs) I think we overstate the bitter compounds of chocolate and coffee. Like, yeah, because everyone wants those. You want those. So let's like talk about arugula instead. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Obviously citrus. Peel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Peels. Like, can you grate peels, citrus peel? Fennel seeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Chris and I attended the microbiome labs conference. I guess this was like two years ago now or a year ago. No, it was last year in oh, yeah. okay. November. I'm I in think. a weird online. Time we war. attended yeah. it online. We sat around yeah. a computer and learned all about bitters and how there's yes. hundreds of receptors in the body. So it's much yep. beyond this conversation. Mm-hmm. It's like, I need to find that guy, that guy's name and talk to him yeah. because... Yeah, you should, because that was a really great presentation. And, you know, we were aware of bitters and their utility in facilitating better digestive juice secretion. It's kind of part of this conversation here, but there are a lot of other benefits of those bitters. And it's just not a typical component of like an American diet because it's not like an enjoyable flavor typically. Mm -hmm. Well, and it can become, you know, when we eat it. So what this really boils down to the simple version is a lot of diversity, especially Mm -hmm. in veggies, I think. And then some of the things we don't always you like, you know, most of us aren't using the citrus peel. I could do a mm-hmm. much better job of doing that. Same. Well, you know, so go through phases. I think like just pick two things, you know, sometimes like the list is long and it's like, cool, I'll pick one of those. But like, you know, what could we be doing that is a nice bitter in yeah. other countries? I have learned this from practitioner friends. Like it's common for them to eat. I mean, we've all been, many of us have been to an Indian restaurant where there's mm-hmm. um, licorice covered fennel seeds at the checkout. I mean, that is digestive bitter. So, but they'll like yeah. chew on seeds. And I, I use that actually in practice sometimes. Me it's too. A cheap it's great. Option. It's, an, mm-hmm. it's a great option. People are like, they definitely recognize the difference. I have strong feelings about bitters, um, strong, <laughs> strong feelings about bitters and just like the potential of that whole food component and all of its awesomeness, you know, because let's not forget that a citrus peel isn't just bitters. It's also polyphenols, which act like prebiotics. Mm-hmm they technically are and they feed the microbiota. So really cool. You know, like super cool. I think one of our favorite things is probably that when you get one recommendation, it just happens to support a ton of other functions mm-hmm. as well. So I'm always excited. I'm like, when we do this, we're going to be supporting this, this, and this. So we can't go wrong. <laughs> awesome. It's perfect. You know, how can we reduce the number of crap we take um, yes. and make it work? You know, and that's, I think like we're all working on that. <laughs> Because there's a lot of options. Like we have a lot of deficiencies sometimes, mm-hmm. a lot of options. Okay. Whew, I'm going to run through the list. I'm going to like, I'm going to summarize a little bit to see where we're at. Okay. So if you're starting to have a sluggish gallbladder, let me talk about the symptoms. It could feel like nausea or indigestion after high fat meals or tender to the touch after the, under the rib cage. If it's really terrible, like if you're having a gallbladder attack, which is stones getting lodged, you're having prevention of bile flow, you feel like total terrible after eating. Mm-hmm. Um, you have like major pain under the rib cage. You might like be sweating, fever, be mm-hmm. shaky. You might, if it's not so bad, just see some greasy stools. You might see alpha-phosphatase enzyme be elevated. You might see elevated liver enzymes. They might do an ultrasound. 
if it's not that bad. If it's not that bad and you have the option, bitters and gallbladder nutrients would be very mm-hmm. supportive. Things that are risk factors, women, being a woman, two to three times risk, weight, mm-hmm. rapid weight loss, low-fat dieting history, uh, progesterone, estrogen, cortisol, all that slows down the stimulation of it, which is what we've been talking about. Cholesterol medications add a lot of burden because the cholesterol gets dumped into the bile. I don't know. I hope this is useful for us to repeat. So that kind of answers, you know, I had a question why does pregnancy tip people over the edge, the progesterone, yeah. like this, maybe even the fluctuation there. So we mm-hmm. said progesterone may slow it down, but you know, maybe there's a big shift there at that point. We talked about daily supporting. What would you add to daily support of gallbladder? For me, it would be bitter foods. Oh yeah. Bitter foods and then eating like a consistent amount of fats. Yes. Yes. Uh, This is where like at the end of the day, it gets a little boring, but here's another way to advocate for protein, fat, and carb at a meal. Yep. You know, just is what it is. It always comes back to that. And it's cool that it does because I think when we hear that list of risk factors, probably most of us listening are like, yikes, I can check a lot of those. Cause like, I mean, hello, stress and we have hormones. So we are females. We're just automatically at higher risk, but it's nice to remember that there's a lot of very simple foundational things that are helping to support that gallbladder. It's not all gloom and doom there. Yeah, totally. And if you've already lost your gallbladder, maybe use of oxbile or bile mm-hmm. acids occasionally is going to be a good yeah. choice because you're not going to always have enough. Like I always carry insurance for things that I don't, I can't, I don't have enough of, right? Yeah. Uh, and like if I'm out to eat at whatever, I might take supplemental bitters because I need the digestive. Like if I'm eating some crap that's not a bitter, I still need to digest that. <laughs> I feel I can feel okay and nourished nourished, you know, it's not that, you know, whatever, you know what I'm trying to say here. That's like carrying insurance, having that option in the bucket. What else do we want to say around this? I think this was, I think this was good, good start to things. I guess the bottom line is don't despair. Lots of hope, lots of potential Mm -hmm. here. Anything you want to add that you think we missed? If you are struggling with persistent health issues, particularly in the digestion or hormone detox realm, and you haven't considered working on gallbladder stuff, that this would be an opportunity to focus on that because I see it in practice often as a major roadblock to success. So over the years, it's just kind of become foundational to make sure that we're taking care of this because of how common that is. So if you've been working on your health stuff and you're just not making the progress that you would expect to see, this could probably use a little bit of attention and Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's pretty straightforward to give it attention, which is cool. Yeah. And when you're supporting this, you're automatically supporting your liver, which I personally feel we could all do all the time. Mm-hmm. But it's not weird. It's like, we are also adding a lot of stress to it all the time. So let's just yeah. go ahead and give it a love, you know? Yep. Okay. Wonderful. Kaylee, where can people find you online? You can find me on Instagram. It's at KayleeRD. And my website is the same, KayleeRD.com. Making it so simple for us. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, We'll try to remember to, I made a note to include your past episodes. Ovulation is the real MVP in the show notes (laughs) below. Cool. And thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's review this podcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.